Support for the following podcast comes from the free event Church Mental Health Summit. Over 50 speakers from around the world are coming together to equip the local church to support mental health in their churches and communities. To register for free, go to churchmentalhealthsummit.com. Yeah, so we've seen examples in it. We've conducted a number of studies and some of the examples that we really found that can make a big difference. One is just providing practical presence of really being there in the moment, listening to others, not having to solve everything that that person's going through, but just really walking with them. You know, an example of this, I, you know, I think back to my own experience when I was probably in like eighth grade or so, my grandmother had passed away. And I remember at the visitation ahead of the funeral that that evening, there were all these adults that came in and, you know, shared all kinds of words of wisdom, I'm sure. And, you know, said all these nice things, but I don't remember anything they said. But what I do remember was my friend who showed up before everybody else got there, looked at me in the eyes, didn't say anything and just nodded. And then he stood by my side the entire evening. And after everybody else left, he turns to me again, looks me in the eyes and nods and leaves. That's what I remember. And that's an example of that practical presence of just being there, of how big of a difference it can truly make. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe and welcome. On the show today, we are talking about spiritual first aid with co-founder Jamie Atten. When I was 11, I desperately wanted to make money. CDs were just becoming popular, and my wish list was very long. Amy Grant, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Carmen, DZ Talk, Michael W. Smith. Come on, I know other people loved them too. These were among my first purchases. But for me to get those babysitting jobs that I want so desperately wanted, I was told I needed to take first aid. Sitting in a stinky community room with strangers was not my preteen idea of having a good time on a Saturday. But there I was learning about ABCs, airways, breathing, circulation, (laughs) how to tend to strokes, various injuries, and CPR. Little did I know at 11 years old that I would end up working in community mental health care, and I would be then taking the CPR course and certifications many, many, many more times. So many that I feel like if I came upon a victim to this afternoon, the steps of CPR, lifting the head, checking for obstructions, listening for breath, and pumping the heart and blowing oxygen, these would be instinctual. And that's the point. Recertification requires us to keep these life-saving first aid skills top of mind so that any one of us could potentially save a life using these basic skills. We don't have to sit back and wait for paramedics to come, but we as neighbors and bystanders can actively participate in aiding a victim. And this is the principle behind spiritual first aid. When I first heard about this program, I was really, really intrigued because I'm a champion of peer support and equipping everyone with the basic skills to support. So I was eager to look into this more. 
Jamie Atten is co-founder of this program with Kent Annan, and it comes out of their work of the Humanitarian and Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. And Spiritual First Aid is a peer-to-peer spiritual and emotional care intervention. It, it teaches you the basic skills for emotional care from both a biblical perspective as well as utilizing 15 years of psychological research. Now, Jamie, he grew up in a small rural community in Illinois, far away from that psychological research. And as an outgoing kid, he loved sports and music, but never really considered a career outside of the farming life. It's assumed that, as it is in many communities, including my own, that the children take over the family farm. But as a first-generation college student, Jamie pursued education. And after meeting an English professor in his first year of college, he began to consider what going to graduate school would look like in his life. And as a young man growing up being surrounded by Christians, Jamie describes how his faith deepened from conversations with his agnostic professor. Growing up, I, you know, didn't know anybody who wasn't a Christian, you know, just based on, you know, the small town of like a thousand people that I grew up in. But then once I went off to college, it was actually that same English professor who became a close mentor, who he would have considered himself, I think, on a good day agnostic, you know, on other days atheist. And, but he really challenged me. Like he was asking, I remember him asking me from a paper that I had written, hadn't written anything too explicit about my faith, but there was enough in there. I think that he kind of picked up on that and had asked me like, why do I believe what I believe? And I really didn't have a strong answer. And so I went back to my youth minister at the time and asked him, and he gave me C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and a stack of books um, you know, probably about as high as, you know, from my, my waistline to just above my eyes here. And I read Mere Christianity and I couldn't put it down. And in fact, that was the first book I had actually ever read mm. cover to cover uh, up to that point in my life. But as soon as I finished that, I just started devouring the other books. And he and I would get together every week and uh, talk with each other. And I would give him something that I was reading, you know, at the time, maybe it was C.S. Lewis or something else. And he would give me things from his perspective and just really started a, a rich dialogue. Whatever. Do you know if anything ever came of that conversation? So we stayed in touch for quite some time afterwards and continued to share readings and things and then eventually lost touch. So, yeah, yeah. So you started studying psychology in school and did you end up going to grad school? I did. So I have a PhD in counseling psychology. Oh, my goodness. More than grad school. Post-grad. Yeah, I got started and I just kept going. So. That is fantastic. That's amazing. So your family must be very excited being first generation to college. They, they, they definitely were. Something I hadn't anticipated was I'd actually been out from grad school for several years and I was asked to come back to um, Illinois just about 40 minutes from where I grew up to do a large training on resilience through the public health department there. And when I first showed up, you know, they were like, oh, great. They're sending somebody from Chicago down here again to talk to us. And, you know, I kind of let that go. But then as the day went, I would share little stories that you had to be from the southern part of our state to know. And somebody finally was, you know, hey, where did you grow up? And, you know, I told them, well, I grew up in Oblong, you know, and on the family farm there. And at the end of the training, one of the people there was like, so when are you going to go back and take over the family farm? And it was the first time that it hit me that I wasn't. 
And like, I went into this existential like angst of like, oh my goodness, how am I going to tell my dad? You know? And so like, I, I sat on it for like a week trying to figure it out because realized like, oh my goodness, I'm really not going to go back to be a farmer. And I called my dad and he's like, son, that's okay. He's like, with you sitting around theorizing about the corn, we would have all starved. So <laughs> you just keep doing what you're doing. So. That is a real thing. Having come from a rural area, that's a real thing. The family farm, the kids taking over. That's an expectation and an assumption, really. Yeah, it looks like I still remember being like maybe second or third grade somewhere around there. Like there was this one day that our family, I don't know where, where we were headed, but we were leaving the house. And all of a sudden my dad like just like stopped and turned to me and he's like, son, he's like the, the, the farmland, that land always stays in the family. And then like we left, you know, and it was just like this, like, where did that come from? But, you know, that mentality still sticks with me today of that importance of being connected to where you're from. So a far cry from farmers, if 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 I know farmers well enough, is the psychology, feelings, emotions, introspection, reflection, <laughs> very, very different. So what drew you to the field? Well, I had mentioned that I had just had this uh, psychology course when I was first going off to college. And there's just a lot of things that clicked for me and helped me understand what I had seen in my own community of mm. recognizing there was a lot of major mental health needs in rural communities. And this really opened my eyes to that. And also it helped me understand, you know, broader systems and looking at the impact of poverty and these sorts of issues and just really felt this kind of sense of what could I do to help. Mm. And so that's what sparked it for me. And now you're specializing in disaster relief. Is that correct? Yeah, so I focus on disaster mental health and mass traumas primarily. Okay. And what led you to that niche or, you know, specific area? Yeah, well, you know, I, I thought what I had planned to do with my career was to focus on rural mental health disparities. Right. Um, and so right after grad school, I moved from the Chicago area where I was doing a, a pre-doctoral internship and moved straight down to South Mississippi for my first teaching position. And I'd planned to do research in the Mississippi Delta, but then six days later, Hurricane Katrina struck our community. And so I found myself going through that experience and within a few weeks of um, starting to do research and working with churches that had been impacted. And then from doing that work, that led to me doing work across the US and even globally around disasters and mass trauma. What were the lessons learned that those first few days of Katrina, because Katrina is one of those moments and I'm not even American. And I, I remember those days. I remember, you know, watching the news and seeing this and being like, oh my gosh, we seemed so unprepared. What happened kind of thing? What were some of those lessons learned from that? Well, I definitely fall into that camp of not feeling prepared for when that happened. You know, my wife and I, we had attended a, a church just down the road from us at that time. And because we had just moved, we hadn't changed our cell phone carrier yet. So we actually didn't get a signal where we lived. We lived kind of out in the country. We had no um, no cable, couldn't get a TV signal yet. The cable person's supposed to come on that following Monday. And so when I went home from work on Friday, the storm was supposed to hit on the other side of uh, Mississippi, but instead it changed over the weekend, but we had no idea until we got to church. And, you know, the pastor there started talking about Katrina and what was coming our way. And afterwards, my wife and I went home and I was trying to figure out what to do. And I remember these public service announcements. And so I'm searching through all of our boxes because they those public service announcements always said, this 
this is what you need in the event of a disaster. And then I found it finally in one of the boxes, duct tape. And I remember standing there with duct tape in my hand being like, what am I supposed to do? You know, later I had realized that that duct tape was for a bioterrorist attack and you were supposed to put plastic on your window. So that's how unprepared I was. I was standing there thinking about Katrina with a roll of duct tape and that's all I knew to do. So um, out of that experience, just learned how important it was to not just have a plan, but to have the right people around a plan. And so really learned how to foster large collaborations of working together and also seeing in our research the massive impact that peer-to-peer helping can make on others. Talk to me more about that, because um, your your research, was it specifically for churches or was it more broad um, mental health? Uh, both. Okay. So we did studies where we went, you know, literally door to door, knocking on thousands of homes to interview people and to complete surveys. We also did research specifically just within congregations where we had access to come in and survey folks, including an entire denomination. What were you trying to learn? What were you asking? One of the things I was really trying to understand better was how does faith help? And are there things that maybe sometimes when faith could actually hinder resilience. And so that was really at the heart of some of that early research that I was doing was to try to understand the connection between faith and resilience. And was there a connection? I feel like I know the answer to this, but I want to hear what your perspective is. (laughs) So uh, what we found in probably about a, oh goodness, maybe about 15 or so different studies that we did over that course of time found that by and large, that religion helped people to live more resiliently in the face of adversity following Katrina. The one caveat, though, was it wasn't necessarily um, how religious a person was that predicted resilience, but how people engaged with their faith that predicted resilience. So like, for instance, um, you might have one person who lost their home, lost their job as a result of Katrina, and they still are viewing God as a loving God who is helping them, you know, to find meaning and things that are deeper for them, where somebody else may have lost the same thing, but felt like God was specifically targeting them and punishing them. And we would know that the person who felt targeted, that they would struggle a lot more across major resilience indicators. So how can, is, is that a personal choice or is there a role Like, how could we help people develop that resiliency? Just thinking of the listeners being pastors and care directors and coordinators and, and, you know, prayer team leaders. How is there a function? Is that a personal choice and a personal journey? Or is there a function for the church to be a part of that? Oh, there's absolutely a role for the church to be a part of this. You know, one of the things that we found, not just in Katrina, but now studying doing the same type of research around the globe and all kinds of different major events. So, uh, you know, from mass shootings where we studied like in Oregon after um, there was a mass shooting in a community college there, another one in Texas that we did research on, the mass shooting in Florida a number of years back. We've also done similar research after major civil conflicts like in Liberia, Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, so all of that research that we've been doing, one of the things that we found across the board was that when people receive positive spiritual support, that it has a positive impact on their resilience and even the way they think about and relate to God. And you'll notice, uh, Laura, that I said uh, perceived Mm -hmm. positive spiritual support. Like, I don't know 
maybe did you grow up in a church where you had a, a gossip chain? I mean, a, a prayer chain? <laughs> well, this is what I was going to ask you. I'm like, <laughs> what is your definition of positive spiritual support? Because that's vastly different, I think, for people. <laughs> it is. And, and I point that out in a in joking there. But, um, you know, not all support, spiritual support is equal, yeah. right? That there can be a difference between when somebody's doing things like the gossip chain um, versus actually a prayer mm-hmm. chain. You know, so when people though feel that they're being loved by their neighbor and by their church, they're more likely to fare significantly better. What are some examples of positive spirit support, spiritual support? Did people give examples or was it, or, or have you noticed trends? Yeah, so we've seen examples in it. We've conducted a number of studies and some of the examples that we really found that can make a big difference. One is just providing practical presence of really being there in the moment, listening to others, not having to solve everything that that person's going through, but just really walking with them. You know, an example of this, I, you know, I think back to my own experience, when I was probably in like eighth grade or so, my grandmother had passed away. And I remember at the visitation ahead of the funeral that that evening, there were all these adults that came in and, you know, shared all kinds of words of wisdom, I'm sure. And, you know, said all these nice things, but I don't remember anything they said. But what I do remember was my friend who showed up before everybody else got there, looked at me in the eyes, didn't say anything and just nodded. And then he stood by my side the entire evening. And after everybody else left, he turns to me again, looks me in the eyes and nods and leaves. That's what I remember. And that's an example of that practical presence of just being there, of how big of a difference it can truly. I love that because so many times I speak to churches and they're, when we talk about care ministry, when we talk about supporting people, they feel overwhelmed because the needs that they're facing or that people are coming to the church with are huge and they're complex and they're intricate and they're unique to every individual. So they, people tell me, how can we support people? How can, we can't be all things. We don't have all the resources that people want us to have, but you're telling us that positive spiritual support isn't being and doing all those things. It's being present, it's being consistent, and it's being um, just a companion, a supporter. I love that. Yeah. And in fact, with our uh, new spiritual first aid curriculum that we just launched, we teach what we call Bless CPR as a way to be able to distill all those different challenges down to five core needs that our research shows that when they go unmet, that causes significant struggle. So instead of, you know, like when I was going through graduate school and still today, you know, I use the DSM, right? Mm -hmm. That giant red book with all the different mental health diagnoses, but you don't have to have that thing memorized to make a difference. Instead, being aware of what we call the blessed needs. So biological, livelihood, emotional, social, and spiritual needs that we should be listening for those five needs and then work with that person about out of all these challenges you've just addressed, what's the one thing I could do right now that would be helpful? So we often think of these needs as being kind of like a Rubik's cube where, you know, when most people come to us, they could probably fill up a Rubik's cube with all their problems. Mm-hmm. That can feel overwhelming, but our goal instead to really focus in on what's that one tile, that one most pressing issue and start there. Because when you focus in on a Rubik's cube, you know, that game can feel overwhelming, but what happens when you push just one tile, it actually shifts the entire Rubik's cube. And so that's the approach that we teach in spiritual first aid. I love that. I want to go back to that spiritual first aid, but I want to first talk about 
what you alluded to in this and that you're listening to the other person identifying their need. You're not inserting your opinion or your perspective. You're saying, okay, you're asking the other person, what is that one thing? Because so many times we think we know what is best for that person or we're assuming we might know the answer to their and people often come up with really simple or um you know straightforward things you know what i need this or i could use support in that and and it's much more effective to be led by the person rather than us lead the support oh absolutely and you know the the stance that we take is that the person that we're helping, they're the expert mm-hmm. in their own needs, mm-hmm. not us. So good. So I'm assuming then um, the Spiritual First Aid Program is what was the result of all of that experience with Katrina, your your training in psychology and your doctorate and, and all the research that you've been doing is this course called Spiritual First Aid. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, so Spiritual First Aid is an eight-session peer-to-peer training in spiritual and emotional care program. So we want to be able to teach people to use their own natural helping skills that they already have. You know, you could kind of think of it um, as like a first aid kit, right? That a lot of people maybe own a first aid kit, but they don't necessarily know how to use everything in it or at the right time. And so with spiritual first aid, we're trying to take the guesswork out of providing spiritual emotional care, especially trauma, where we're helping people to take the skills, the knowledge that they have, but to be able to teach a step-by-step approach for how to help. Step-by-step approach. I know in physical first aid, it's, you know, you, the ABCs, airways, blood and circulation, I think. Oh my gosh, this is going back a couple of years. I need recertification, obviously. And then there's like pump and blow and and check for choking, like all of those things. It is a very step-by-step process. Are you saying that spiritual first aid is a, uh, a, a patterned or a step-by-step process or is this like a concept? No, it's so we literally teach it as a step by step process where, in fact, there's even a lot of visuals that we provide where we teach people how to walk alongside others on a trauma informed path. So if you had that in front of you, what you would see there is first, there's an emphasis on preparing to help. And we start with humility to understand our motivations for wanting to help, as well as our strengths and weaknesses as a helper. And then as we start to encounter others on this path that we call the trauma informed path, that the first step that we're going to do is um, in the whole, each step comes out to what we call blessed CPR. So the first step will be doing blessed triage. So that's the B. So you're going to first try to identify what's the core need that you're going to help this person with. The next step being the C um, in the blessed CPR framework of spiritual first aid is to be able to care with practical presence And then from there, the next step would be to provide coping practices. So the P stands for provide coping practices. And then the last step of blessed CPR being R, refer and resource. And then each step of the way, we provide tools and protocols to be able to make this really concrete of how to do each one of those steps. And then also teach a trauma-informed principle with every step. What do you mean trauma-informed principle? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so looking at best practices. So, you know, starting with like, how do we actually recognize when something is trauma, but also how do we make sure we don't just assume everything is a trauma? 
right? That, you know, everything can, when you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And so we're trying to help people to approach from a place of being trauma informed. And so by the end of the course, we've taught people nine different trauma informed practices that go along with each of the steps. That's fantastic. That's cool. So who is this suited for? What would the, how, who would be interested or find value in taking this course? So what we've found has been that, you know, with what the way we designed it was really for peer-to-peer helping. So this is really for anyone that's a natural helper, whether you're a volunteer, you're a pastor, you're a first responder, that we've found groups, all of from those different groups using it. We've also had a, a number of Christian schools that have started using it, a number of churches that are using it, Christian nonprofits are using the course right now. So it's been really exciting to see the diverse range. And then we've even actually had a number of mental health professionals who have taken it and are using it now to help them with establishing greater collaboration with congregations. What do you mean greater congregation collaboration? I like I like all those terms. So what do you mean when you put them together? <laughs> sure. So, so one of the things that I've done a, a lot of research on um, in non-disaster settings, but then following my work when it pivoted into disasters and trauma was to also understand how can we improve collaboration between clergy and mental health professionals and between churches and mental health agencies. And so we've done that both in disaster and non-disaster circumstances. And what we've found is oftentimes there's not a lot of collaboration that maybe people will say you should go see a counselor, but there's not really a relationship with that counselor. And so one of the things that we've found is that this has been a nice tool for mental health professionals to also use as a way of building trust and getting to know other churches. Oh, I love that. And we had David Eckert on the podcast not too long ago, and he talked a lot about building collaborations between the church and, and, and the mental health sector. So that is awesome. Definitely a big fan. So in building the uh, spiritual first aid program, seeing it develop, uh, seeing churches take it on and organizations and schools and different things, what, what do you see? Like, where, where do you hope this is going? Like, what, what do you hope will come out of this? We really believe that everyone can help and make a difference. And so we really are hoping that with the new launch of the Spiritual First Aid course, that we'll see it used in a broad way for churches and communities to be able to support and provide spiritual and emotional care. And we also did a research study recently, and that'll be coming out from an American Psychological Association journal later this year. And with this one, we did a pre and post study, and we found that it improved the helper's ability to identify the problem needing addressed, that it also helped them to avoid some common helping pitfalls, like trying to help too quickly, and that people were also much more likely to actually ask about safety issues like suicide. So we even saw that as a positive benefit. So just really hope that we continue to see those sorts of positive gains as this rolls out. Is this an online or an in-person training? We have it available as both. So people can take it individually on demand in a self-paced way, or they can take it as part of a facilitator-led in-person group. So those that decide to do it as a group, we also provide additional free resources for them, for the facilitator that really, once they turn on their computer, download the documents, they have everything they need to be able to run a group. So you don't have to be a licensed facilitator to be able to like train your volunteers at your church per se? 
No, what, what we look for is just somebody that has had some experience being a facilitator. You know, maybe you've led a small group or a Bible study, or you're just willing to learn. So we've tried to take all the heavy lifting off of the facilitator. So their role can really be to help, you know, keep the conversation going, we provide the teaching videos, a workbook and activities. And so that person's role is just really to help bring the curriculum alive for their group. Oh my gosh, I love that. There's so many barriers sometimes to be able to access training. You have to be certified, you have to be in person, or you need schedules or, you know, all of these resources, but everything is online. You've really removed a, a huge amount of barriers. That's awesome. Well, you know, the, it all comes kind of back to that uh, having grown up in the middle of cornfields, <laughs> you know, that we're, we're, and I'm not, I'm not joking, you know, like I, I grew up in a community where there was not a licensed mental health professional in my entire community. And so you had to drive a ways to find one. And so, you know, what we lacked in resources, though, formal resources, we made up for with neighborly help and support. And so, again, having gone through disasters, oftentimes that larger infrastructure uh, takes a toll. And so we were trying to figure out to do exactly what you said. How do we remove these barriers that we want people to be able to open it up and just jump right in? Mm, so good. So where can people find more information about this? Uh, to find more, you can visit spiritualfirstaid.org. Spiritualfirstaid.org. Fantastic. Uh, I feel like this is like a full circle moment because at the beginning, at the outset, you said, you know, you thought you would be doing rural uh, mental health. And then, you know, it's that term, all who wander are not lost. And so here you are, full <laughs> circle moment, providing uh, rural uh, mental health support. <laughs> I just had to take a few detours along the way. There you so. go. Yes. Well, and those detours equipped and trained, and we are so grateful that you, you know, were obedient and were able to, you know, have courage and, and take those, take those, oh, I don't know, those dips and bends uh, with grace and carry on. Well, thanks so much. And I've really enjoyed connecting with you today. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking back to those beginning years, um, you know, high school, college, you know, when you're first starting out in, in practice and starting out in this, I don't know if you want to say clinical work or ministry, or maybe it's a mix of both, knowing what you know now and, and what would you, you know, if you could write yourself a letter or send yourself a voicemail, what would you tell your younger self? Great question. Um, I think what I would probably tell my younger self is to have started reading earlier. So, like I said, I really was not into school very much growing up, hadn't read a book front to cover, you know, until I got to college. And so I wish I would have started reading and learning more earlier. I love that. Spoken like a true academic. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love it. Well, I so appreciate you being a part of the podcast and sharing this incredible, absolutely valuable information with us. Thanks so much, Jamie. Oh, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action today. How are you going to be intentional about applying these resources, the skills, the tools that you've heard in this episode to help build a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church? And of course, if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting. Take care.